We have come to the end of 2 Timothy, so we're in chapter 4, picking up verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for our church family. We thank you for the graces, the many deep graces represented in each person here in your work in us. We thank you for the collective work that you are doing amongst us with one another. We're thankful for those who are being reached. We, we're grateful for each class that's taking place now. Uh, we particularly ask for Christian Explored, for Grief Share, which have numbers of people who do not know you. We, we pray that you would be working in their lives, drawing them to yourself. For teens, kids who are here, that you would be feeding their souls with the truths of the gospel, establishing a confidence in your word, bringing them to know you. For each of us, strengthen our souls as we look to you. And we ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul comes to the end of this letter to his protege, Timothy, knowing that his time is short, in this world. And so he closes addressing his perspective about what does it mean to be finishing life well. Verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. He views his life as an offering to God, and he says, I've already been poured out as a drink offering. A, a drink offering was... Uh, pouring out a libation usually of wine that would be at the end of a sacrifice being made. And so the, the sense of this is that my life has been given as a sacrifice, and this is the very end of it, the, the final outpouring of my life which has been given to serve God. It, a similar principle is he gives us in Romans 12.1, where he says we are to be a living sacrifice. Uh, a sacrifice is always killed before it's given. So a, a living sacrifice means that's, it's an ongoing condition. It's, that's what life is. It's how we live. So Paul is saying that he is already being poured out, which emphasizes uh, the sense of coming to the end. I have given all that there is for me to give in the service of the Lord, that he has held nothing back, and the ultimate sacrifice is, is upon him. He is in prison Rome. He's aware that the death will be coming. These types of declarations I mean, tend to intimidate us. We can admire Paul saying that my life is poured out for God. It's a drink, drink offering. There's, there's nothing restrained. All is given to him. And, and there's something in us that we know that that's what we should be. But the idea of just everything for God, 
feels very intimidating. It feels very hard. It feels limiting. Uh, it feels something that we would like our life to be, but it doesn't seem realistic to us. We're not really convinced we could do that. We're not sure we want to do that. I think what's important for us uh, when we hear passages like this is, is to be willing to engage with this thought of just everything for God. Uh, and instead of considering it in the context of what does this mean for what I have to do and give up, uh, which obviously giving our life to God involves doing things. And it involves some things that we don't do and, and thing, changing of what we have and what we do with it. But it is primarily who we love. That's, that's the motivation that Paul has. That's why he would say such a thing. That's why he has lived this way. It's about who Paul loves and what he values. And when we think of wholeheartedness for God, when we think of sacrifice for him, it, to think in the context of who do we love and so what do we do for those whom we love? I think we'd all readily talk about making great sacrifice for spouse, for children. Uh, you know, what wouldn't we do or give up if we were convinced they had to have it, that this was necessary. There is built-in motivation where there is love. And that's how movement toward God takes place. That's how sacrifice takes place. It really is how those transformational parts of life that seem difficult for us, behaviors that seem difficult to change, those things that kind of nag and work at us and seem to stick to us, there are practices, there are steps to take, but, but it comes primarily out of growing in our love for God. When we grow in our love, motivation comes. Motivation is natural. And things that at, what, at what one point seem so intimidating and difficult, the more we love God, they, they start to seem welcome. Uh, I was just thinking of someone... Uh, in our church recently, has uh, been a believer for some time, and there was a particular form of obedience that this person had been talking to family members. It just, well, I, I couldn't do that. It just seemed too much, too big of a sacrifice. And now they're, they're just doing it. Uh, and they're glad to, they, because they want to, because their love for God has truly grown. And when we think in terms of embracing the challenges of Scripture, which Scripture doesn't call for part of our life. The Scripture never calls for half-heartedness or you know, just give God a try. Um, God asks for all that we are because we are his and because it really is best. It is at one point is what all of us will have wished we always did was that God had all. And as we consider 
passages like this and challenges like this, rather than just throw up our hands because what well, it just it's not going to happen. It's not possible. Who can do that? Maybe someone like the Apostle Paul that we think is an unnatural person is not real. It's not any way connected to me. Think, do I love God? How do I move forward in love for God? And that's going to carry us in steps and uh, the practices are going to increase and and we find ourselves growing and, and moving forward. And as we think about Wholeheartedness for God is what will make heaven wonderful. And as believers, we, we have that much faith to believe heaven is going to be wonderful. We, we're used to thinking on that terms. So we have to ask ourselves, well, why will heaven be wonderful? Uh, part of it will be you won't have people bugging you. God's going to fix all those people who annoy me. And there's, there's truth in that. Uh, but what will be true of us? Uh, there, there's no hesitancy. There there's, is no half-heartedness. There's, there's no holding back. There is the complete commitment. We, in a sense, are, are poured out, and there's no sacrifice in it because God will be our all. It, all for God will just be natural thinking, natural acting. There's no clinging and holding that we've got to keep this or protect this. It, it's all God's and we just live in the freedom of that and telling our own soul and mind what makes heaven wondrous is that Christ is all to us. And so that heaven on earth, heaven increasingly on earth is that Christ is all to us. In fact, there is no other way for any measure of heaven on earth other than Christ has more of our heart. That, that's what it is. Paul makes three statements in verse 6 that describe how he has lived before the Lord in this way. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These statements, uh, I'm sure he had his previous letter to Timothy in mind because at the end of 1 Timothy, uh, in chapter 6, verse 12, he tells Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you're called. And here he is saying, in effect, and that's what I've done. Timothy, what? What I've urged you to be and to do, uh, now that I'm coming to the end, I, I can say, that's how I've lived. That's what I've done. I have fought the good fight. Uh, life is a battle. That's not news to us. Uh, there is spiritual bloodshed. Uh, there are horrific wounds. There, there is deep trauma. There is constant attack. There is weariness. There's the, the idea of the fog of war, the idea in the midst of all conflict, it, there's so much uncertainty. What's going on? Where is the enemy? What's go- we live in the fog of war all the time. What's going on? How do I get out of this? Where are attacks coming from? Uncertainty, woundedness in ourselves, people around us. 
And you are completely incapable of handling this fight yourself. You can't even begin to. You don't have the strength. You don't have the wisdom. You have no capacity whatsoever for this fight. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaks of this. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, he has this well-known passage on spiritual warfare. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able. How are you going to be able? Put on the armor of God then you will be able to stand against the schemes, the trickery, the deceit of Satan. Without that, you will not be able to stand against the schemes of Satan. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have to be honest. What hope do we have? We don't even understand what all that is. How do you protect yourself against what you don't even comprehend? How do you protect yourself against powers that are beyond our imagination and grasping? How do we stand against powers that have overtaken and corrupted and defeated every person who has ever lived in this world but one? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day having done all to stand firm. If we're going to say we, we've fought the good fight, we, we have engaged faithfully with the spiritual battle that is daily life in this world, we must enter our days prepared. And our thinking must be rooted in biblical truth. The, the, there's no way around this. If we have a spiritual a casualness with spiritual preparedness, then we're going to not be fighting very well. We're going to be overtaken. We're going to be deceived. We're going to be defeated. We're going to live in inconsistency. Uh, this is not maybe, generally, possibly, this is absolute. Because we are, in ourselves, utterly incapable of standing against that which opposes us every moment of our existence in this world. The fact that the entire world is caught up in it and is being overcome constantly uh, we don't notice how bad it is. We, we think at times we know how bad it is when we see, you know, horrific brutality and violence. And at times we hear the thinking of the world and, you know, how big it is. 
but we're still not grasping how huge this fight is. The way we are created, what is, what is to be victorious, what is to be correct and right, is that we would be great commandment people, that we would love God with all that we are, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We would love our neighbor as ourselves. Anything short of that means we have failed to some degree. Because that's the call of God. That, that's what it is. Ultimately, the good fight is we love God with all that we are at all times. And even in our best of pride, you know, who among us is arrogant enough to say, oh, yeah, that, I think that's me. Think how casually we do enter our days. Somehow that we can just jump in the routine of the day without any time with God as if, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. If things get tough at some point, you know, I'll throw a prayer up, but as though we're not desperate. If we lived in a part of the world where when you went out the door, bullets were flying... You'd think about how you leave the house. What time of day, what you're wearing. It, if, if there is imminent threat of actual death, or you're somewhere where wild beasts just proud among the three trees in your backyard. <laughs> if there was something that we thought would actually take our life, how would we change stepping into the yard, stepping out of the house beginning of the day? We don't take it that seriously with our spiritual health. But we know, but we don't know how bad and serious it is. So we can be casual about our preparedness. Uh, we can allow our emotions to make our decisions as though our emotions are something that should carry us along. Or just what we think, you know, our gut feeling, without a biblical perspective, without assessing, am I really thinking biblically here? Am I just going along with what seems to be ordinary, how people think, or do I know that I am thinking biblically about this, about how I'm living. As we battle, we need to be prepared. We, we cannot be casual. But also, we need to make sure we're, we're joining the good fight. Because it's not just enough to battle out there. That's what, because everyone knows there's a battle. Everyone in the world knows life is a battle. But most of them, are, they're fighting the wrong one. They're all fighting each other. They think each other are the enemy. They're thinking, if I can defeat them and get this in control, life will be good. And whatever they want to get in control will just bring more destruction, which is what every new election does for us. 
Every single one, without exception. Some people think a little better than others, but each one is going to bring in steps that we think are the answer, which will utterly fail us. And then some new way will bring a different form of destruction because it's going to bring something other than looking to God completely and solely for our answer in life. And we can get worked up that the right person's going to be the answer. Well, yeah, it is the right person. The problem is his name is Jesus and he's not running for election. He says, I'm the king. Will you bow your knee to me? So let your battles be for the growth of righteousness in you. Let's battle for that. And let's battle for the display of God's righteousness in us. As we're battling, we are in, in some ways in the battling of evil that brings us into conflict with people who follow after evil. And it can feel as though the battle is with people who are going along with evil. And there's some truth to that, but Paul tells us where the real battle is. And a spiritual battle against Satan and those forces, that's not one with it. There's no policy, there's no government, there's no place other than our own soul and heart where this battlefield is actually won. And so we need to be giving the most attention to the battle in our soul for our heart and our thinking and our attitude. That's, that's the real fight. What is my heart toward God? And as I interact with this world that is sinful and am in disagreement with it and am trying to, to live against the flow of it, is that righteousness on display in how I interact with people? with whom I disagree and am concerned with their direction. Is righteousness ruling in how we think and live? Is righteousness displayed in how we interact with a sinful world? That's the battle from a biblical perspective. We need to be wise and alert, and yet what we don't need to be is fearful. And that's encouraging news from God. In this all-encompassing great danger, we don't need to be afraid because we are following one who has zero fear. The one who has no intimidation. The one who is utterly sovereign over, without exaggeration, every molecule in existence and every evil being that is described only exists because he causes it to exist. Which brings other questions to our mind, but it's still the reality of it. No being exists without God enabling it to exist. It's not even as though God has created beings that have become evil and are out there, and if he wanted to, he could catch up to them and take care of them. 
It is that the fact that they exist now, the next second, the next second, is the active work of God to cause them to keep existing because only one being continues to exist on its own, and that's God. He is the only being that is self-existing. Every other being requires God every moment it exists. The more we think of this, so we don't have to be afraid of those things. And that's what we've been seeing in Hebrews week by week. Hebrews 10.39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not us. We are those who have faith in who? In Christ, King, Sovereign, Ruler. We have faith in him, and so our souls are preserved. So we battle without fear. And we can battle with, without worrying about cost, because Nothing can be taken from us that God does not give and oversupply. And as we'll see, abundantly reward. There is loss for a time. There is that hurt and pain. But there's no ongoing loss by anything the enemy can do to us. God has equipped us with powerful, all-sufficient means to protect ourselves and to counterattack, to live the good fight, to fight well, to engage in this world, to engage with our souls, to engage with whatever temptations are coming, whatever struggles, whatever pressures, we are able to engage well. We are able to engage as Paul said he did. He fought the good fight. For going back to Ephesians, continuing in verse 14, stand there for having fastened on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace on our shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. God has equipped us, and and nothing that's listed there is specialized. It's not as though, well, special forces Christians have these things. This is what Paul describes as the foundational, basic elements of gospel truth that every Christian has. What does he speak of? Truth, righteousness, the gospel our faith in Christ, our salvation, the word of God, prayer. That's what every believer has and engages with. The difference is some of us engage with these things more consistently than others and have been committed and are seeing these things more clearly because we're We're understanding what the Bible says, and we're living it more clearly out. But this is what every believer has. There is nothing you have to go out and find to be protected, as Paul says, to have everything needed to stand. You don't even have to go and get it. You don't have to 
come to one of the pastors and say, I need this. You have it all. It's part of being a Christian. And so we, we are living in. And so understanding needs to have, what does this mean? How do we apply it? How do we grow in it? But it, it is all your possession at all times. And as we fight, keep in mind, we're never alone in the trenches. At the end of this description of spiritual warfare, he adds, the end of verse 18, to that end, to this standing, therefore, for God against spiritual forces, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. While you're at it, be praying for each other because everyone else is in your spot. The responsibility and the care for one another, that none of us are alone and we're all meant to be aware ourselves and we're all meant to be aware of what's going on ourselves with awareness of the others around us. And that's, that's part of why the church exists. That's part of why the call to the church is so important, essential. That's why commitment to a body where you're known and know is so essential. It's why the Bible, the New Testament, is filled with dozens of one another passages because that's what the Christian, that's how the Christian life is lived. And that includes how we're fighting the good fight, how we're walking through this. As a human, you are in the battlefield. That's just part of being a human in the world. As a Christian, you are equipped. And so it's foolish not to fight wisely. Because the battlefield is something you're in. The equipping you have. So not to... Not to think through using and living with what you have when consequences are real and it's always at us. It, I think we would all agree that's not wise for ourselves. Paul has not only fought the good fight, says, I have finished the race. Racing is another metaphor that Paul has used elsewhere for the Christian life. Here, the focus is on the, the idea of perseverance and consistency, that you keep at it. It's just one step keeps after the other one, so that you, you finish the race. You have continued on. You haven't stopped and just wandered somewhere and just, I'm done. You've finished by being consistent. You know, over the last 40 years of being a pastor, the number of people who are part of the church, people who are engaged, who are showing evidence of loving the Lord and taking steps and at some point shipwrecked along the way. Some never truly believing. But many true believers, but life has become wrecked in all sorts of ways. 
family wrecked, reputation, just how they live each day. It, the Christian life, where they are, you know, real disconnect. How does that happen? Why? Some people are better than others. Some are stronger than others. You can't find that in Scripture. God cared for some more than others. Can't find that in Scripture. What is the difference? Is, are, you, are we persisting or not? Are we keeping at it? Or we just get diverted or we're just... Things haven't worked the way we want, and you know God just God hasn't shown up for me, so I'm not going to show up for Him. Or that's just too much. I, I can't do that. Or I'm just sick and tired, so I'm abandoning this. Or He's just asking too much, and I'm not willing to do that. There are all sorts of things that happen that bring shipwreck of lives. Now we all, you know, we we we're all capable of. Kind of ending up on the shore, you know, getting beached <laughs> at times. And a, a lot of this, Debbie and I have had a few conversations. When we think of people, how many who have left the church and then not many years later, the number of divorces. Now, it doesn't mean because they're not a part of Green Tree or they're in a different church. That's that's not the point at all. It, it's people who, at some point, what, they're just dissatisfied with life. So I'm just going to go and find something better and different. And it's, it's indicative of what's going on in motivations and thinking. And if life's not working, I'm, I'm going to abandon the relationships and commitments I have just somewhere else. And then what happens is then well, it doesn't work there, and then something else. And They never develop roots and consistency uh, because they're not thinking and understanding the value of persistence, of keeping at it. Again, the, the point is not leaving a church or not. There can be very good reasons to do that or appropriate times. It's when that is just a reflection that, and we're also not really taking God's word seriously, and prayer life's not much, and compromise, it's just indicative of not being rooted. Then on the other hand, you know, the value of just sticking it out. On September 6, 1995, Bucky, you should know what that was, Mr. Baseball fan. Cal Ripken surpassed Lou Gehrig's Major League Baseball record with 2,131 consecutive games played. For over 20 minutes, fans screamed joyously. Players were applauding. Celebrities from all walks of life were there to join in the celebration. 
when Cal tried to take a seat on the bench, the fans kept cheering. Finally, at the insistence of teammates, he sheepishly walked to the field, waved with both hands, patted his heart twice, and, and went back to the bench. Fans wouldn't stop. They kept cheering in unison. We won Cal. We won Cal. So he goes out again, you know, kind of waves, you know, thanks, tries to sit down. The, the pitcher... Bosky just stood on the mound and didn't even attempt to try to pitch. He knew there was no way the game was continuing. So slowly, players grabbed Cal Ripken, pushed him on the field, and he, he began to just circle the field as people cheered. Hundreds of people reaching from the stands, shaking, touching hands. They, they all wanted to be a part of it. One of the, the biggest celebrations on the field that has ever taken place in baseball. And yet, so, and what did the guy do? He showed up for work every day. I mean, he didn't win every game. He didn't have the best batting average, the most home runs. What was this huge celebration and win? He went to work every day. <laughs> That's it. Showing up, taking the next step, just keeping at it has huge value. We cannot overestimate consistency. Persistence isn't flawlessness. It doesn't involve always winning and being successful. And it's not always pretty. But it does lead to finishing well. Are you consistent with the basic of showing up? Showing up in time with God. Showing up in the things of God. The graces God has given us to be and to do. Show up in those things. Be in them. Do them day by day, even if you're doing it poorly, even if you're doing it some days with a bad attitude. I don't want to be doing this, but you, you recognize more deeply than I don't want to do this, how desperately you simply need to be in the process. So even when you read the same paragraph of scripture four times, and you're, I'm still not even sure what I just read. The value of, I'm doing this because I love God and I need him. It, it's not that you learn so much today. It, it's, it's the orientation. It's what you're pointed toward and what your value is. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul declares he has remained faithful to gospel truths. You know, looking again back at Ephesians 6 and verse 16, uh, when he says, take up the shield of faith, he goes on to say, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Faith, I trust God. 
I'm entrusting myself to him. I believe he is true. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is God. He is Creator. He is the one that controls beginning and end. He is the one I need. Faith is entrusting ourselves, believing and acting upon him and what he has said. I have kept the faith. Paul is saying, I believe what God has said, and that's how I live. I live in believing what he has said, in doing what he said. And when something unbiblical comes, I respond with what God has said. We respond as Jesus did in the wilderness with Satan's temptations than how Adam and Eve did in the garden with temptation. We respond, God has said, this is God's intention. We shield ourselves from all the attacks, from being pulled away, from getting on a wrong path by responding to whatever we respond with, this is the truth of God. And whatever it calls for, wherever it leads me, that we will do. What we should value, that's then what we're going to value. Faith is holding up God's truth against any untruth, any compromise. And so we need to be asking ourselves, are we holding on to any perspectives that are less than fully submitted to the truth of God? And how would we know if we are or aren't? Are, are we open to want to know? Are we willing to want to find out, is there something in the way I'm thinking that really is not fully biblical? Are we willing for that to be pointed out? Do we want to know? Or are we just kind of, I want to cling to what I got. The ways I'm going are the ways I kind of want to be going, so... I'd prefer not to have something pointed out if it's going to require change. When something in Scripture, we read it, we're, God really can't mean that. Are we willing to pull back? Is it, well, no, maybe he really does mean that. And that it is possible. It's actually good. That's actually better than the way you're going. And if you went that way, you would go, ooh, this is better. Have you ever known that you've acted improperly towards someone and that you should apologize? We'll make it real basic and simple. And inside, you're, you're just, I can't apologize. You just, something in you, it's, it feels impossible just to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. It feels impossible. It's too hard. But the moment you do it, you're, you're, why was that hard? That, was, that wasn't hard. I feel so much better. This is good. We're so glad we apologized. We're, we're so glad we repented. It's not hard at all. There's relief. There's goodness. There's restoration. There's encouragement. It is all blessing. And that's how it is when we pursue God fully.
Finally, Paul gets to his motivation. Verse 8, which is the eternal reward of God. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. A crown was given for winning a competition, the athletic. Garland of leaves or a ruler wearing a crown. In either case, it is a, a public affirmation, the public recognition. I won or I'm in charge. Just in case you're walking by and didn't realize who I was. The person wearing the crown won the race. Or the person wearing the crown is the one you're supposed to bow to. It, it's recognizing the affirmation of what we have. And he speaks of, there is waiting for me the crown of righteousness. The, it's another way of saying the glorification of our being made fully like Christ. The, what is what is the greatest benefit, the highest honor, the greatest blessing? What is the fulfillment of being a person? What is the absolute highest height of being human? It is to, to live in the righteousness of Christ. That's as good as it gets. The crown of righteousness. We, and we all receive that. All believers will, when we see him, we will be like him. We will be glorified. That perfecting of our character, of our heart. And, and Paul's willingness in all of this struggle, all he goes through, he, he is thinking of the reality of what God does, what is coming. And in his heart, that's what he wanted most. And so... That's what he pursued. And he was content knowing that. Uh, if, if there's someone, anyone in the Christian faith, who would say, well, you know, kind of had some reason to grumble along the way. Let me just go back to, is it chapter 11? 10, 11 of 2 Corinthians, his list of all that he's been through. All, all the times he was beaten whipped, stoned. If someone smacked me once just because I'm a believer, that'd be a lifelong story. I remember the time someone beat me. I mean, I was hit once for being a Christian. I mean, they just hauled out and slapped me. I had a Chris Rock moment for Christ. You know, we would think, oh, yeah, I suffered. I'd find a way to bring that up a few times. Yeah, I was slapped once for Christ. Paul was beaten to the point of death over and over and over again. And yet, it, he kept embracing it all. He sought to escape what he could, but he embraced what God brought because... I know what's coming, and nothing can stop it. What is, what is the reward that you want most? Because this statement of 
Paul makes about what he's looking toward, it, it raises the question and goes a long way in how faithfully do we live for the Lord? And a big part of that is the question, well, what is it that you really want most? What is the reward I should get? What is the goal, the desire that you want most fulfilled? Now, there are all kinds of things we can want. When I get home, I, I'm hoping there's a piece of pie left in the fridge. I mean, that's, that's a very real one at this point in my life. I, there's all kinds of wants. Uh, but, but you understand that there, there's an ultimate. What is that? If it is to see Christ, to hear his words of commendation, to honor him, to be with him, that does a lot for shaping and, and helping us in consistency and making decisions. What is it that we value most? This is key to seeing real life change. What do we value most? Being consistent, becoming mature. What do we love above all things? Well, we'll close with the last section, the longer one, but look at it briefly. As, as Paul closes, as he often does, with lots of names being mentioned, this is not just greetings. Um, He's speaking of kind of the place people have in his life, and he has a particular purpose in this. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love of the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him, for he's useful to me for ministry. Tychius I've sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troyes, also the books above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus, do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings, as does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Hey, he has you know, faithful workers that he has sent out. He lists where men, many of those names we see in other epistles where he speaks of where they are, that he sent them. These are all workers, disciples of his. There are the unfaithful betrayals, Demas, who in Colossians and Philemon he calls 
my coworker. There is a real opponent, Alexander. And if Paul's been Paul's been opposed by so many people, he couldn't even count them all. For him to pull out one man and say he did great harm, that had to be serious, heavy harm and opposition. There is a broken relationship now restored. Mark, whom at one point, he refused to travel with him anymore because he bailed. And now he's saying, he's, he's valuable to me. There is desertion in Paul's time of need. At my first offense, he, and he's speaking of believers here. You know, he's not speaking of the unbelieving world. He's speaking of Christians, co-workers, at my first defense. And we're talking about near the end of ministry. Think of all Paul has been, the Apostle Paul. How many of these people came to Christ through him? Their maturity was because of him. Their ministry lives was because of him. And no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. Imagine the pain in his heart as he even wrote that. And he brought it up in chapter 1. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. It's one of the saddest statements in the New Testament. Paul is in this hard moment, and all the believers left, hid, stayed away, were silent, left him on his own, so that Paul, who was very gracious, would say, they all deserted, deserted me. Hard to comprehend. And then there are the ongoing partnerships that he mentions at the end that he treasured. So a couple observations as we finish up. Paul carried out ministry with an abundance of people. Some doing what they're supposed to, some not. Because again, the Christian life is conducted in community. Are we growing with particular people? Relationships with particular people that are part of that we're growing and how we're growing. Are we impacting particular people? Are there people that know us and see us up close enough to be impacted by us within the context of God's people. We should not let the fact that we're sometimes burned cause us to pull back. I just, I've had enough of people that drive me crazy. Paul, Jesus, knew what it was to be deserted. They understand that hurt. An important area of Christian consistency is the sticking with the Christian people in our life. Now, that doesn't mean there are not boundaries and that sometimes there's not discipline and there's correction, but the theme of we stick with. Even the people that are messy and not always 
the most fun. We, we stick with commitments. In Proverbs 14.4, where there's no ox in the manger is clean, no work, but much strength comes through oxen. Related to this is don't burn your bridges with people when we're frustrated, when we're angry, and we can write people off. And that's what the world does. Uh, and that's kind of increasing. All, you know, the wise people that... Bumper sticker type statements of success and freedom. And, and what is common to most of them, statements are, you know, and a lot of Christian pastors and leaders, these kind of statements is, you know, you can't let your life be held back by people who are not, you know, building you up. And you, know, you got to associate with the right people. And, and there's some truth. We need to connect with healthy people, with mature believers, be growing. But this idea that we just abandon people because they're not fitting in our plan to make our life maximized. How do you fit that into a biblical perspective of life? How do you fit that in the description of how Jesus engaged with people when he was on earth? Yeah, we, that's what Jesus did. He looked for everyone who could maximize his potential. What absurdity. And men who claim to be pastors, preachers of the word of God, say such hellish nonsense. And people lap it up and buy their books. Nothing to do with Christianity. Zero. Parents... No matter how frustrated, don't cut off your children. Yeah, there are times where you get, there may need to be boundaries, sometimes even legally, if their harm could come. But the frustration of, I'm just hands off. I'm not talking about rules, boundaries, but cutting off because we're so bothered. Or disagreement between believers and just, we don't agree on everything, so we can't have fellowship. Or with the world, with the cultural wars, because you're the enemy that we can't deal with people with respect. What is it that we want to happen with our enemies? Uh, isn't that they come to Christ kind of the highest thing on the list? How did, why would anyone listen to what we have to say if they don't think we respect them? They have zero motivation to listen to anything we have to say if they don't think respect them as a person. And so how we interact with the people who hurt us or bother us or how we interact is to think through, are we doing so with gospel attention? Finally, life and ministry is enriched as we widen our circle of people and involving others. Whether it's being in a community fellowship where the people that we know and engage with, it's our missions partners. Think of how enriched our church is by being 
part of what they're doing, of them being able to know we are praying for them. I just got a text from Sergey today, just sharing as he's back in Poland, and you know, he has a bunch of new expenses he didn't know were coming, and he, he's just speaking of when everything feels like it's pulled out from under them to have been able to have care. Uh, people, I know people are, were praying for them and the generosity of many people who just on their own just gave to them. And he said, uh, and so we're able to cover everything that we didn't know was coming because of relationship that was real and committed. What a privilege that we can be in those relationships and have a part in it. We enrich our life as it's engaged in a meaningful way, obviously with God above all wholeheartedly, but with his people. It adds to life. It it can be wearying, but it adds to life. Next week, we continue our studying through the pastoral epistles by beginning with Titus chapter 1. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, this night, your people, your word. Be a part of it in our hearts and minds for your glory's sake. Amen.